0: So spoke Scottish sprinter Eric Liddell, who 98 years ago, in the 1924 Paris Olympics, went on to win gold in the 400 meters and to smash the world record, before he gave his life to Christian missionary work in China, where he died. He raises the question, though, how do you run and not grow weary? Father, in our race running towards the heavenly prize, give us the answer so that we can run and not grow weary and not be faint, amen. I spent much of the first half of my life running. I'm aware of, therefore, the many paradoxes of running. Here is one, fun run. A figure of speech used by deranged exercise junkies with masochistic tendencies, I think. I've run lots of long-distance fun runs. I can testify they are painful exercises in agony and exhaustion. I mean, honestly speaking, with due reference to Mark, has anyone ever been able to tell you what is enjoyable, enjoyable about long-distance running? I know there's an endorphin rush which happens afterwards, but what about the actual running itself? Why would you do it? And yet, all those hours of pounding the roads in feigned enjoyment taught me a lot about perseverance in running a race and that has been very helpful for me in my Christian life because in verse one of Hebrews 12 we are told to run with perseverance the race marked out before us. We run, verse one, with all those Old Testament saints we covered last week in chapter 11 who've run before us. They've made it. And now it's like we're entering the final uh, part of the marathon and we're entering the stadium and all these people who've gone before us are standing up in their seats and applauding and cheering us on as this great cloud of witnesses, cheering us on not to give up But to keep going, press on towards the finish line. Now faith and hope, we covered that last week, of course they help us to press on towards heaven. Get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. We have to do that, don't we? Don't get tripped up in the last lap. Run the race, persevere to the end. Long distance running taught me a lot about running with perseverance, keeping my eyes on the end goal breaking down the journey into smaller stages, concentrating on each one so as not to get overwhelmed by the task. When I came to a hill, putting my head down, just focusing on putting one foot in front of the other till I got to the top of the hill. So fun runs, I think, actually, ironically, have their purpose, although they're a paradox. But the other paradox of running is how Christians run. Because whilst we know all running is exhausting, In the film clip, Eric Liddell spoke of those who hope in the Lord as renewing their strength, not depleting it, imagine that, of them running and not growing weary, of them walking and not growing faint, words from Isaiah 40. You contrast that with the other runner in the story, Harold Abrahams, who was castigated by his coach there, he runs with his scowl on his face. And when he was beaten by Liddell, he said, if I can't win, I won't run. To which he got the answer back from his girlfriend, if you don't run, you can't win. You see, running which wins, running which makes it to the end, requires a runner not stopping, requires a runner to keep on running, requires a runner paradoxically to somehow overcome their exhaustion. I wonder what you find exhausting about keeping on running as a Christian. Perhaps you're in constant pain, you have chronic back pain. Pain is exhausting, isn't it? Maybe there's discouragement, potentially from other Christians. The constant demands of small children, the daily struggle with temptation, living with anxiety about the future, The sudden specter of cancer or the relentless erosion of Christian values which leave us isolated and now labelled as the bad guys. What happened there? These things can leave you exhausted, physically and spiritually exhausted. After coming back from Cambodia, women Mike and Prince, they said, you know what, it's harder to live here than there as Christians. The constant pressures, the deadlines, the schedules that make up our busy lives, it's harder, no no wonder we lack joy as we run a race. The good news is that Hebrews 12 tells us how to run without exhaustion. Verse three, the goal is that we would not grow weary and lose heart. Well, verse 12, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the lame, that is those who are exhausted, may not be disabled but rather healed. So this is a very useful chapter. It tells us how to keep running the Christian life without becoming exhausted. You ready? Okay, so how does this happen? How do we run and not grow weary? How do we renew our strength? Well, according to this chapter, it all has to do with Jesus, surprise, surprise, (laughs) and he gives us a better motivation Because of Jesus, we are able to run in a way totally unlike any other runner, another running paradox. All other runners run so as to get to the finish line. Of course, so do we. But the paradox is that whilst we run with our eyes on the finish line in heaven, we also run with our eyes fixed on the fact that we have already arrived. What? Okay. So verse one, we run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, as the race towards the heavenly prize, which Jesus, verse one, has already arrived at. But then verse 22, it says we've arrived. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now that verse is not talking about our future hope, it's talking about what's true for us now. It's saying through Jesus, spiritually speaking, we have already arrived there. In heaven, this is the communion of the saints line in the Apostles' Creed. And yet at the same time, we are running there as well. We keep running, fixing our eyes on the heavenly goal, knowing that at the same time, we're already there. This is a paradox. If if you like, imagine a runner who's running towards the finishing line, but know they're already at the finish, which makes them all the more determined to keep on running because they've already arrived. What? We may not immediately understand it, but we need to see it because this is the secret to running and making it. The key to running without exhaustion is where we're looking. We keep our eyes on the goal of where we're heading, verses one to 17. At the same time, we run and keep our eyes on where we've already come to, verses 18 to 24. They're the two halves of the chapter. Where we're going, verses one to 17, and where we've come to, verses 18 onwards. We think, hang on a moment, this is crazy. We're not in heaven now. How can we be running towards heaven and be there already? Ha ha, now we get to it. The key to that paradox is Jesus, our better motivation. In Isaiah, it was those who wait on the Lord who renew their strength. For the Lord has come, and his name is Jesus. And he has gone through suffering for us, he has risen to heaven, and by faith, our lives are inseparably bound up with him. Verses one to two. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Well, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we lock eyes on him, what do we see? We see him as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now that word pioneer came up earlier in chapter two, verse 10. It can't translate directly to English, but it means something like the trailblazer, the one who first cut the path through the impenetrable jungle. And at the same time, he's the hero who saves everyone in the process. There's these two ideas in this word. He is the trailblazing leader, the first to open up the way to heaven, He's also our hero who saves us in the process. So he opens up the way for us to follow him into heaven, but at the same time he's already brought us there. So when we run our Christian race, we run with our eyes on where we're headed, the place we're already come to, but also where he's already brought us. And that makes him a better motivation. On Friday morning, uh, we woke up to the shocking, stunned news that the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, had died. The Queen who would never die, supposedly. I mean, could you ever have imagined a world without Queen Elizabeth? She was the unshakable constant, wasn't she? Uh, Kind, stable. (laughs) What would she have, 15 British Prime Ministers? you know, during her reign. She was wonderful, she was a constant, she was a believer in Jesus, a Christian, and she was not ashamed of him, she often commended him to the world. She is someone who has run the race, knowing Jesus as her better motivation. In her Christmas message of 2011, the Queen said, Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness and our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important as they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. It is my prayer that on this Christmas day we might all find room in our hearts for the message and uh, and the angels and for the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a woman. The queen understood that on the one hand Jesus is an example to us as we run. Verse two says, for the joy set before him Jesus endured the cross Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the, magis- of the throne of God. Verse three tells us to consider him. He kept his eyes on the finish line. He endured suffering and opposition and he made it. And now he's in the throne room of God. The purpose for us considering him is so that we ourselves would then follow his example and run with perseverance without growing weary and losing heart. He's our great example, he's made it. He went through extreme sufferings, more than we will. But he got there. He was fully human, he was like us. And on the other hand, the queen also understood that Jesus is not just our example, but our savior. He has saved us and in turn, already taken us to be with him in heaven. I tried to summarize the point of this chapter in a little ditty there on your outline, it's on the screen. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, and our victory that he's won, let's run with strength towards him, to the kingdom that we've come to. (laughs) Okay, that was my turn, let's say it together. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, and our victory that he's won, let's run with strength towards him, to the victory that we've come. Challenge for the musicians, you need to put it to music, it would sound better, right? (laughs) But I tried to bring up both sides of this paradox. We run with our eyes on Jesus, towards him as our example, who made it. That's on that side, but we also run with our eyes on the kingdom that he has already brought us to. Now is that how you run the Christian life? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? I'm not sure how many of us actively keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we run the Christian race. Most of us probably run with our eyes on ourselves or on others. When our eyes are on others, we secretly maybe congratulate ourselves that at least we're not like them or you know, we haven't fallen as they have. Or, or if we've got eyes on ourselves, we berate ourselves. We try harder, try harder. Well, those are recipes to stop running, either through laziness and complacency or through burnout. For years, I ran the city to surf in Sydney, 14.7 kilometers including Heartbreak Hill, one mile up. My goal in running was always to break the hour. I had that goal because it was my dad's goal and my dad lived for running and it became my goal too. And I did break the hour, twice. But the first time, Dad was a long way ahead. I couldn't see him, and so I pushed and pushed and pushed and tried harder and tried harder. Pushed myself literally to exhaustion, crossed the line, although I can't remember crossing it. I know I did because my photo was there. You know, they send you a photo. But I can't remember. As I was coming up to the line, all I remember was seeing one official step into the road and point at me and say, get him. because I had been staggering all over the road. I woke up in a bath of ice in the medical tent with an internal body temperature of 41. Dangerously exhausted. My mum was not very happy with my dad that day. (laughs) What have you done to our son? I remember seeing other people coming in and thinking, they look terrible but they went out long before I did. Try harder, try harder, disaster. Is that how you run the Christian race? Eyes on yourself and what you must do. It's a recipe for crashing from exhaustion. The second time I broke the hour, I ran differently. I'd improved enough to keep Dad within my sights. I could see his red and white St. George singlet jumping up and down front of me we went side by side but we were close enough to be together and because I was able to see him and knew that he'd already run where I was running it kept me going I crossed the line in good shape 58 minutes 30 fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God This, I think, is the only place in the Bible which says Jesus endured the cross not just for us but for what he could get out of it, for the reward that he would get once his race was complete. And it's mentioned here because he's an example to us. And Hebrews says, consider him, think about him, think about the hope of a heavenly reward, how that was able to keep him running and not give up and how having suffered on the cross, he was rewarded amazingly, think about that. And the reason we're to think about it um, in his race is because our race is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Although not as hard as for some, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We share that in common, actually, with the first readers of this letter. Others had shed their blood, um, but they, the readers hadn't. And others do so now, but not the first audience and not us now. However tired we may feel, we need to keep our pain in perspective and part of that perspective is to step back and remember the big picture of why God puts us through suffering and what it says about God and what it says about us in relation to him. You know, we can be tempted, you know, when we feel battered to just laugh at what God is maliciously doing in our life, sort of like a coping mechanism oh, well, hit me again, at least it's not as bad as a poke in the eye with a burning stick or something like that. He says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't joke about it. Joking about it can make us blind to seeing what God is really doing through it. We can also be tempted to lose heart and then think that God's entirely against us. That'd be an equal mistake. Verse five, don't lose heart when he rebukes you. The Lord disciplines those he loves He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He disciplines, his discipline of us proves that he cares. That's the point that I tried to say in the children's talk. What what son is not disciplined by his father? Every father who loves his children will discipline them because he wants to teach them how to make it in life, right? It's only a a child that means nothing to him, not a true son or daughter um, who is not disciplined. To be disciplined by the Lord God is in fact a sure sign that we are his children. Now that changes the whole way we are to think about hardship in life. It's not the only explanation of suffering in the Bible but it's a big part of it. Okay. And at the very least it says we ought to respect God if he cares enough to discipline us. Verse nine, we we should respect him because right now, verse 10, God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. God is more concerned now about our holiness than our happiness. He is concerned about our happiness but it's not gonna be what happens here. He's got something better in store for us. Now what's necessary to get there is our holiness. Okay, now, you may have lots of objections to that. You may say, well, thanks a lot, God. (laughs) Verse 11, the Bible is wonderfully real. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. We may not like him at the time for it, but later on, God's discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Now, I want you to note that not all people become holy through their trials. Um, We're told it's only those who are trained by their trials who yield that harvest of righteousness and peace instead of becoming more bitter. You could become more bitter, but if you're trained by them, there's a harvest of righteousness and peace. And that's why this chapter is helpful because it teaches us what God's method is in all this madness. You know, if we didn't know that God was trying to change us to be like him through our sufferings, then we could easily just give up in despair or just become very cynical. But knowing that there's a purpose in it, and God is shaping us to rely on him and to share his holiness, to reflect his character, that means we can actually get on board with the program. The application in verse 13 is for us to strengthen our tired bodies so that we might run without giving way to exhaustion. If you went to see a sports physio or you had a personal trainer, they would break down that command into its component parts and show you how to run. Verses 14 to 17 are like that. The Christian race broken down into different exercises. The first command is to make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, I don't know what happens to you when you hear that verse, but for me, I think, Oh my goodness! Try harder, (laughs) but remember that's putting our eyes only on ourselves, and that's not how we're told to run. We are to run with our eyes on Jesus. And once again, here's the paradox: in Him, we've arrived, or although at the same time, we need to keep running. So when we think of our holiness, on the one hand, we've already arrived. That is. Has made us holy. So chapter 13 verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the city to make the people holy through his own blood. Or chapter 10 verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Well that's a very big comfort when we read that without holiness no one will see the Lord. Jesus has made us holy, we are there already. But on the other hand, we need to keep running. We need to keep working at our own holiness. You see both truths coming together in chapter 10, verse 14. By his one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Both parts. Jesus has made us holy, but we need to keep working at it. Both are true. The next component is in verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The verse before was talking about living in peace with all men. So to miss out on the grace of God means to withhold forgiveness from one another. That is to miss out on the grace of God that we extend towards one another. Where there's grievance and forgiveness withheld, a bitter root could sw- spring up very quickly indeed. And as people take sides in disputes, many people may become quickly defiled. So it's saying practice forgiveness. Verse, next, verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now, if you remember the story, there's Esau, red-headed, hairy, <laughs> the oldest twin to Isaac and Rebecca. He's just come in from hunting, he's famished, he's so fixated on having his belly full that when his scheming twin Jacob says, I'll only feed you if you give me your inheritance rights, Isaac, oh sorry, Esau doesn't bat an eyelid. He sells in his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Later on, he, he goes on to live an immoral sort of life with his two Canaanite wives. They are a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah, the parents. Now, maybe you don't think you've got a lot in common with Esau, (laughs) okay? But consider this. It was exhaustion that led him to do something so stupid. Exhaustion. Now, you get exhausted. I get exhausted. When we're tired and exhausted, our defences are down, and we say things like this. I'm so tired. Surely the rules don't apply. Surely at this point in my life, I just need something outside the boundaries of what I know is right. Surely a little indulgence. We let down our guard. We enter relationships we shouldn't. We behave with other people we shouldn't. We watch things we shouldn't watch. We push the boundaries. We seek relief where we know it's wrong. It can happen when we're physically exhausted. It can happen when we're emotionally and spiritually exhausted. If you're tempted that way, ask yourself, is your inheritance really worth a plate of soup? Because that's what you're getting. Verse 17 sends a chilling warning. Afterwards, you know, when Esau wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, even though he sought the blessing with tears. Now, what if we've indulged? Does that mean you've lost your inheritance? Well, not necessarily, but the warning stands. Um, we're talking about immorality, which means to have sexual relationships with someone you're not married to in your head or in your body, right? I can think of someone who sat there from a previous church, okay, and they'd had a hard 10 years and they were tired and they were lonely and they'd been through a lot and then suddenly from interstate an old childhood sweetheart turned up, married, mind you, but started to pay this person attention. And the offer was accepted. And it began as a one-off fling, small indulgence, as a comfort when life had been difficult. But very soon, that person stopped attending church, they began drifting away. Drifting away from meeting with their brothers and sisters, closing their heart to the word of God, Then they drifted away completely from Christ. Absolute disaster. They sold their inheritance for a plate of soup. That's what they did. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance. Now that is a scary thought, isn't it? Repentance, by the way, brothers and sisters, is always available while you're alive, while you're here. What confidence do we have? Very quickly, verses 18 to 24. Keep our eyes fixed on where we've already come to. Here's where we've not come to. We've not come to life under the old covenant, to a mountain that can be touched, that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses Moses, he said, I'm trembling with fear. When the Israelites heard God audibly speak at Mount Sinai and delivered the old covenant to them, it was terrifying. He's saying, guess what? In Christ, you haven't come there. You haven't come to that mountain. Verse 22, you've come to another one. You have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written securely in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, which is no longer terrifying because through Jesus we've come, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke of Cain's guilt. The blood of Jesus speaks of our guilt taken away. That's the difference that Jesus makes for us. So last point, running to worship. Hebrews 12 begins by telling us to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. It ends by giving us the goal, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. No one really thought that the queen would die. I mean, we knew she would, but it shocked the world. Um, On Friday, I walked around with a great sadness. It was like a wait. I think I was grieving for this lady I'd never met. She just meant something, I respected her, She, she was gone. Even her kingdom, the greatest reigning monarch in British history, that's a kingdom that can be shaken. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And the goal of our running is that so through Jesus, we can enter into life with the God who is real, the great and awesome and terrifying God who is a consuming fire for everyone who hasn't got Jesus. But to those who have got Jesus, we run, we enter into that new and living way to know this God through Jesus so that we can come to him in his, his brilliant, wonderful, awesome presence and we can come and worship him. There is no better thing than that do you believe it you'd better because god has promised that everything else that we might live for will one day will be shaken and destroyed everything in creation just shaken like this and then we'll see what was worth living for the kingdom of god that will matter in the end so god is calling us to run to that goal friends And he says strengthen yourselves to run with perseverance that race towards that goal, strong in the assurance that with Jesus and our eyes on him we have already arrived. Let's pray. Let's say this together. With our eyes fixed on Jesus and our victory that he's won, let's run with strength towards him to the kingdom that we've come and may we make it, amen.